Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. So, let me get this straight. It was just over a week ago that we were about to go into a second lockdown for four weeks to save lives and to stop the NHS from being overwhelmed. Now we are being subjected to day two of the miracle vaccine that's going to save the world from coronavirus. And it's not just one vaccine either. We are now told that there are going to be three different versions available before Christmas. Well, two, three, four, uh, what's a couple of vaccines between friends? It seems to me that somewhere somebody is sitting with their fingers very firmly crossed. Are they really expecting us to believe that there is no planner in Downing Street, that there is no one playing the long game or at least attempting to? Is it really credible that one they ordered this latest lockdown, which is still not really looking like one. They had no clue that a new vaccine announcement was planned for a week later. There are more questions and answers this morning, and we'll be putting them to consultant neurologist Dr. Wakar Rashid. 0344 Coming up later on in the show, archaeologist and TV presenter Neil Oliver will join us to give us his take on yet another weird week from the USA election battle to the fields of war on Remembrance Day. And we'll be bringing you another Prime Minister's questions. What's the betting that Sir Keir Starmer will welcome the news of a new vaccine, but will complain that it should have been made earlier? Because that's what he normally does, isn't it? We haven't heard from him, actually, for a while. Uh, I dare say the cycling community is probably quite pleased about that. Political correspondent Charlotte Ivers will join us as well for that. 0344 499 As ever, we need to hear from all of you, of course. You are the eyes and the ears of the independent republic. Yesterday, thanks to you, we learned about how the Department of Health has been sending out letters to people warning them not to go out, particularly if they are in a vulnerable situation. However... Some people who are in receipt of these letters are not vulnerable at all. So what is going on there? What's in the post today? We want to hear from you. There's a new plank of the week out as well. And there's another storm coming. We'll be finding out what the weather holds after this rather unseasonably warm week that we've had. Uh, It's all going to get a bit nasty again. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
Now, once again, the paper's absolutely chock full uh, of stories about the brand new vaccine, how great it's going to be. Good Elf uh, is what it says on the front of the sun, uh, where three jabs are possibly going to be made available uh, by the end of 2020. GP services will be cut to allow millions to receive the COVID vaccine, says The Guardian. Vaccine challenge revealed, says The Independent. NHS vows, says The Express, we'll get vaccine out by Christmas. Uh, So, uh, is there going to be a vaccine out before Christmas? Is anybody going to be seeing any chance of getting it, particularly if they are not in one of those top 10 categories, i.e. everybody else goes before uh, you do, because there's nothing actually to suggest that you need to have the vaccine. Let's find out from Dr. Wakar Rashid exactly what is going on. He's consultant neurologist, MS specialist as well. Uh, Wakar, very good morning to you. Uh, Morning, Mike. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be pessimistic about this. I'm just slightly sceptical, shall we say, uh, of the idea that we're suddenly going to go from nowhere to somewhere with not just one vaccine, but possibly three before Christmas being made sort of universally available. Yeah, it's a bit like buses, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, exactly. Um, There was a race between several companies, and uh, you may recall there was a lot of publicity a few months ago from the Oxford group as to the progress they were making. But obviously there are vaccines in preparation in the States and uh, other groups in Europe. And uh, it seems like a sort of very similar time frame has, has happened. Uh, I think the key is going to be uh, really safety data and efficacy. Mm. And we've seen very little information so far, apart from what tends to happen now is that uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, they release, particularly if they've got some good data, they sort of release their initial data to the stock market before they actually then make available their more detailed sort of scientific data. And so that's what we're waiting for, really. Yeah, I mean, you've expressed some um, scepticism or some questioning, really, about this 90% effectiveness as well. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, it's um, it's, a, it's a slightly complicated point, so I'll, I'll try and get it across. But um, if you uh, look at the data that was released, uh, 40 plus thousand people, but the actual number of events uh, of COVID within the trial as a whole was, was very small. It was, I think it was 90 something, 94, mm. I believe. Now, obviously a 90% difference. There's different ways statistically you can come to that. But uh, if you can imagine, if you have, say, several hundred events, then the difference between, say, if you've got two groups within that several hundred and one group is 90% bigger, it's going to be very large. Now, if you've actually only got a small number, you can get a 90% difference, but actually the absolute difference in events between the two groups may be very small. So the point is that uh, when the overall number of events is quite small, that tends to exaggerate percentage change. Uh, because, you know, uh, having a few more events in one group than another event, because the overall number is quite small, it it means that a percentage term that lifts the difference. It's a slightly technical point. I appreciate that. But I think the point would be we really need to see the data and then we need to see how it plays out longer term and obviously as it's rolled out. So, And I think any regulatory authority, the MHRA, We'll, we'll do this, they'll be on top of this, I'm sure, we'll be carrying out very, very close observation as this vaccine is rolled out in terms of safety and efficacy. And when you say 90% effective, does that mean that 10% of the people who receive the vaccine it won't work for? Well, it's, it's not clear. Um, so, I, it, and I've, you know, I, I've not 
had a chance really to look at if anything further has come out this morning, but I'm not aware that there has. So mm. whether this is sort of a 90% reduction in symptoms, whether it is a 90% reduction in infections, how were infections determined? Were some of these infections actually asymptomatic anyway and just based on a COVID test, which obviously happens frequently in in real life and in terms of very minimal symptoms. So it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty here. I think the point, though, I would say is that as long as um, we've got good safety data, then this is an advance in the sense that uh, if we are reducing either symptoms or positive tests or both, then it gives us extra confidence as a, as a society and also um, uh, in terms of makes it far, far easier to um, lower the risk to, uh, to more vulnerable people. And mm. the ir- ironic thing about this is, uh, as well is that we're back to herd immunity again. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, and I've been saying this on and several other uh, people who uh, have seen this is that, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to be dismissing herd immunity because this is how vaccination works. So we, we're not going to see absolute 100% rollout of this vaccine across the board. Um, Children aren't going to get it, but also, you know, there's going to be people either too ill to take it or don't want to take it, whatever it may be. But as long as a sufficient percentage have the vaccine, then that will provide wider immunity, either to lower the intensity of any COVID infections or so that you get sort of occasional smaller scale breakouts at different seasonal times or to eliminate it completely. And so, you know, it just shows, let's say, it just didn't say, you know, when you see uh, people really quite zealously trying to pursue this sort of zero COVID strategy, mm. it's not rooted in reality. No. And it's really the opposite of what we're trying to achieve with vaccination. And what about the way the government has kind of um, done this whole situation? Because basically we heard from Boris Johnson not that long ago in the House of Commons saying that there might never be a vaccine. Now, one, it makes me wonder what their lines of communication are like. I mean, I'm told that they're going to be appointing a new chief of staff in Downing Street who may pull everything together and make sure that everything sort of works properly. But it seems incredible to me that the Prime Minister could say, on the one hand, um, uh, you know, there might never be a vaccine, to and literally less than two months later, uh, some other minister saying there could be three. I agree. I think um, it's amazing how, not just in this area, but in other areas, we've kind of been buffeted event to event without any seeming forward planning or, or prediction. Yeah, and I find that uh, impossible, almost impossible to believe. I mean, is it really the case that the government is running a day-to-day Downing Street without really any kind of, you know, I said no planner, meaning an actual document which actually says what's coming up over the next few months? Well, I think it, it shows how... Um, so if we take the example of the vaccine in particular, or the vaccines in particular, so um, there is a, there is a important rules and reasons why uh, data is kept... Um, confidential because you don't want to prejudge and preempt and safety data has to be collected before one can make an announcement. But it's very clear that uh, whether it be the WHO or governments or whatever are not in the loop on in terms of these announcements. So they go, as I said to you, they go to the stock market first. There is a huge bump in the value of these companies. So uh, Pfizer had a, a massive, I can't remember what the percentage was, but they had a massive bump in their value when they announce these results to the stock market and obviously then other groups uh, there's a race for other groups to get their positive data out as well because they don't want to be seen to be left behind so there's a i think there's a big commercial battle going on at the moment Mm. and governments are not really it seems very much in the loop they're kind of reacting to it 
rather than uh, rather than uh, being aware of it. And uh, uh, as I say, the medical community is certainly not in the loop. The wider medical community, I should say, are certainly not in the loop neither. We're just waiting and waiting for the data. Now, I understand that the regulatory authorities are in the loop in terms of, um, you know, there's an ongoing sort of safety review. Uh, and, you know, that, that has to be the case because if... Um, Pfizer announced, you know, these good results, and then suddenly a safety concern is highlighted a week later. It's a massive, massive uh, reputational and financial loss for them. So one would assume that the safety data, therefore, is promising. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't have been a good idea to to have announced uh, their their results so soon. But I I, I agree. I think, you know, um, the whole thing, I mean, if you look at the wider points of lockdown in general and the second lockdown, we sort of were flung into it following... uh, a, a delayed news conference on a Saturday, and then data that comes out following uh, following early next week mm. seems to sort of show that things are actually improving rather than worsening. But it's interesting what you say, uh, Wakar, about um, you know who's in the loop because NHS England are the people yesterday who came out and said basically that GP surgeries and and uh, and general NHS customers are going to suffer because there's going to be this huge rollout of uh, of coronavirus vaccines being given out by NHS England doctors, uh, you know, in special uh, organised kind of centres across Britain. Could be sports halls, could be conference centres. It might mean that other things don't get sorted out. I mean, we keep hearing this and we've heard it all before. And I'm not sure that the public isn't suffering from a bit of sort of fatigue, you know, it's kind of disaster fatigue, if you like. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, uh, what we're talking about as well with vaccinations is the need for them to work sufficiently this herd immunity that's, which is real and is what we need mm. is is a, a high percentage take up and if people have lost confidence or faith in the process and that we've got to win that back because uh, I mean, I've always felt that you know we uh, the advisors have got distracted in minutiae thinking that they could influence the virus when really there's the, the, the individual policies actually don't really do so so going on about little things like who you can see, which household, and that, when actually the fundamentals have kind of taken a back seat. And, and actually when people don't self-isolate when they have symptoms uh, or um, uh, uh, are not being able to access a test if they've got symptoms and then self-isolate, and if we're not able to protect care homes, then those are the fundamentals and those are the things which actually matter. And it, it's concentrating on all these other different rules, 10 o'clock rule and rule of six and so forth. Yeah. It becomes a distraction and it loses people in the process because, you know, you, you, my feeling is, that, you know, you concentrate on, say, the three to five most important messages and keep ensuring those are the, those are the things that are observed because those are the things that actually make a difference. All these other things, I think, becomes almost an overreach of, of your ability and it, it, it starts to erode trust. And I hope that we are able to once we have a rollout the vaccine, able to regain some of that trust. I think the other thing, just to quickly mention, is that we've got to keep GP surgeries open during mm. the rollout of the vaccine. Well, that seems imperative to me. It seems yeah. like, you know, if the NHS is not working because of whatever reason, you make sure that it is working. You don't just go, oh, it's not working because we might be overwhelmed. I mean, it's, it's again, this, this uh, perception that, you know, all other illness must take a back seat. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've, you know, You've, you've seen I've long argued that we, you know COVID is extremely important and serious, but we've got to continue to take seriously and uh, and, and treat all other illnesses as mm. well. Because uh, if one looks at the effects that this uh, COVID is is 
a bigger fag, but it's 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 not up there, thankfully, with uh, the, the the really uh, big serious uh, illnesses that have been there for evermore. And, and, and it's not killing people in as large numbers as other diseases and other illnesses either. But look at Wales, for example. I'm looking at the paper today. There's a whole load of pictures of people out and about in Cardiff last night, drinking, uh, carousing, happily mixing with one another, not social distancing, which is the inevitable result uh, of a 17-day sort of, you know, as they called it, fire break lockdown, right? So um, presumably um, in about two weeks' time, they'll say, oh, the infection rate's gone up again. I think, you know, and you'll see, you know, you, you'll have uh, these pictures in the press and saying, look at this, look at these terrible people, they're not sticking by the rules and so forth. And it, it's, it's just a distraction because, uh, as I said, uh, we should be concentrating on the fundamentals and doing these gimmicks like a firebreak lockdown, which is completely evidence-free. The, and if you look at the data, yeah, infections levelled off in Wales, but they're levelled off in England mm. as well. We didn't have a lockdown at that time. Well, except they didn't and, level off in Merthyr Tidville, which now seems well, to have the <laughs> highest rate of infection in the, in the entire country. Well, that, that, and that's right. And it just shows... And, and the thing I don't understand or get is that why isn't anybody then going back to the health advisor or the first minister in wales and to sage in in this country when uh, we have uh, you know seen the level leveling off and reduction of infection rates in, in liverpool for instance so forth saying what was the purpose of doing this lockdown yeah you know there, there seems to be a continued assumption in how um lockdowns are if you like um the savior if, if things are running out of control lockdown mm. and there doesn't seem to be any closure of, if you like of that process and say well actually did it do that yeah and if it well this is what i've been saying that there isn't ever when they announce there's going to be a lockdown there's never ever a target uh, set in terms of what uh, achievement can be said has been has, has actually happened you know if you stop the lockdown have you had it was it a success there's no measurement for that uh, and i guess that you know the concern would be um uh, for england um uh, obviously, Wales have now come out of their lockdown, but England, if we come to early December, if we're having a rise, if we're having a, a re-emergence of our flu season and we're having a rise in, in general infections within hospitals and we're running short of beds, which does happen most years, mm. uh, then uh, we, we come back with an announcement saying, well, we can't come out of lockdown because the hospitals are full and we're worried about uh, overwhelming them. And so, you know, you don't, have a clear sense of purpose as to why the lockdown is there and actually is it going to do any good right. and uh, you know so i'm pleased that wells have come out of the lockdown but you know if there's no comeback to them saying well was it useful they, they'd be tempted to go into lockdown again if well that's right and we're already lockdown. hearing that there's a third lockdown nationally uh, being discussed at the highest levels of of, of health and, uh, and downing street included as well um which i think an awful lot of people would be very dismayed to see regardless of what the timing would be but it seems to me uh, dr wakar that there's a kind of whole collection of measures being brought in from the mass testing systems they're doing in liverpool to the lockdown in wales to uh, you know the five tiers in scotland to you know complete lockdown in england which isn't really a lockdown but at the end of the day the virus pretty much does what it wants you know it will it will it will it will sort of um it will swell in numbers at times it will reduce in numbers at times it will infect certain parts of the country at times uh, and 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 seemingly be gone from other parts of the country i mean i think i think in london now there's talk that uh, there isn't one london borough uh, which is high enough in terms of its infection rate yeah. for it to be in a lockdown so you know it seems to me that whatever the government does doesn't make any difference Yes, uh, I'd I'd go along with that. I think the one thing which could and should be done and isn't happening, which does make 
uh, and even Sage acknowledges, does make some difference is if we have a, a robust um, sort of isolation of people who need to isolate. Uh, so people who are symptomatic and who've got a positive test. And I think the, the figure currently for people who are completing the, the isolation process is about 20%, which mm. is just ridiculously low. And uh, so that's where, you know, if you wanted to do something, and if you feel that you could influence uh, this virus, that's where you need to be. Um, instead, we have these crude, blunt measures which affect populations as a whole and are hugely damaging economically and obviously are health damaging as well. Uh, and it, I, I just don't get it, really, why uh, there isn't more pushback on that, saying, well, look, um, why, why can we not improve um, the measure that you yourself, as a, a scientific expert and advisor, have said is important um we, we instead we sort of seem to try and overcompensate by doing all these other measures which you know are blunt tools and yeah. uh, seemingly have little kind of scat- it seems to me like a kind of scattergun approach you know which yes. is which is really not particularly what we need at this time but listen i'm, I'm sure that you and i will be talking about this for a while longer dr wakar rashid thank you very much indeed consultant urologist ms specialist of course agrees with me that this whole kind of you know government approach of let's try this over here and let's try that over there and then when you come back over here we'll maybe do something else over there because over there's not working particularly well but over here it's working quite well but next week there might be something we haven't heard about that might be useful for us to use then and then after that we can go back to the other thing that we were doing before we did this last thing which is not working either but it's great isn't it everything's going so well um that we'll have a vaccine before christmas maybe three maybe or maybe not this is talk radio It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
And for those of you watching us on YouTube, we are having a couple of issues at the moment with um, uh, some technical problems that we're sorting out. So do stay with us. Do stay on there. We will be getting the YouTube feedback as soon as we possibly can. And we're quite optimistic and hopeful that that will be very, very soon indeed. So let's talk right now uh, to Neil Oliver uh, and find out what Armistice Day means to him. Neil, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mike. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. A very important day in our history. I mean, it's uh, Remembrance Sunday is always um, a time for kind of reflection. I always think that the moment that we that we celebrate or commemorate Armistice Day, 11 o'clock on the 11th, um, re- uh, remembering what happened in the First World War, it kind of defines us as a nation, I think. I agree wholeheartedly. I, I'm... I don't know, perhaps it's just in my personal wiring, but ever since I was a a little boy, I've been deeply affected by the First World War, everything to do with it. And of course, uh, with with all the ceremony and all the emotion and grief that that still hangs around uh, the 11th of November, both of my grandfathers fought in and survived uh, the, the First World War. It, it always, I've always known that, that, but for another twist of fate, if anything had happened to either of them, I would not. We would not be having this conversation now. Uh, and it was that—that that was my first sort of visceral connection to history, where I, where I understood that events from the past were not irrelevant to me; mm-hmm. that they were absolutely part of my family story, uh, and that I was a I was a product of that past. And I, to this day, I, I mark uh, the Remembrance Sunday, uh, and then on the on the day itself, whenever the eleventh actually falls in relation to the Sunday, I'm always aware. Uh, of, of eleven o'clock, and I, and I think about particularly, uh, you know that you know there's been talk about the the hundredth anniversary of the of the burial of the unknown warrior, and I try I try and imagine what that must have been like that day, uh, when for all of those, you know the million families that had lost a son or a brother or a father, uh, and that there was that possibility that the that the person inside the the coffin of the unknown warrior was theirs. Mm. And I try to imagine what it must have been like for all of that grief, the grief of millions of people for the, for the purposes of that, that ceremony to all become focused like a needle point on, on one, one body, you know, the, the body of one lost warrior. Uh, and I, I think about what the intensity of the emotion must have been that day, mm. you know, just years after the, the, after the war ended. And I, I, find it, I, I find it difficult to think about to this day. Yeah. Without feeling a genuine emotion for it. Well, absolutely. And whenever you see like the the tomb of the unknown warrior, the uh, the, the eternal flame. I was in Arlington Cemetery uh, once, which is quite a remarkable place. And if you've been there, it's just outside of Washington, across the bridge, where there are just it's a bit like uh, what what you see in France, uh, but it's in America, and it's just these cross, you know, acres and acres of, of white crosses of people who have given their lives for for one cause or another. I always, I think that around the, the First World War or, or any, all wars, there's always so much controversy and arguing goes on about who was right and who was wrong and what were the, what were the genuine motivations for it. And, and it's all an impossibly complicated story that will never be unraveled. It's a Gordian knot of complexities. But the one thing that needs to be remembered is that for whatever reason, these millions of men and women uh, were harvested uh, in the name of those conflicts. Uh, and regardless of who was right and who was wrong, the, the necessity to remember uh, bloodshed on that scale, uh, all of the fall of all sides, and when anyone is confronted with 
you know, I've been to the battlefields, the cemeteries in France, mm. Tyne Cot and Teakval. And whenever you're confronted with the, the vastness, the number of names of the, or the number of crosses, you're, I haven't been in Arlington, uh, but whenever, whenever you're confronted with what that actually looks like, the necessity to remember what was done and, and, and what was done to those people and to think for one moment that even after a hundred and odd years that we're beyond it, I think is hopelessly uh, optimistic and naive. I think the state of the world today, this moment, the, the, the antagonisms and the, and, the, and the heat between nations is still a product of the fact that we are damaged children of an unhappy family that, that went to war in, the, in the, those dreadful 30 years of the 20th century. Mm. And the consequences of it and the, and the grief of having lost tens of millions of men and women and civilians to think that we're recovered from it and beyond it, I think it's worth remembering that we're still hurt and that we bear the scars as nations and as a species. And it, we may well bear those scars forever. Yeah. Funnily enough, I was talking earlier to uh, Julie Hartley Brewer about our children and and how possible or impossible it is to keep the kind of memories of those days alive, because obviously it can be difficult um, talking to teenagers about something that happened so long ago that has any kind of memory or any kind of influence on their lives. So so, I mean, how do you do that? Well, I'm I'm obviously from beyond it. So are you in relation to the First World War. Um, you know, uh, and, and there was for a long time it was believed that when the last of the veterans died, mm. uh, that there would be a there would be a, a dwindling of, of interest, uh, and and it would begin then because there would no longer be that living connection to the events that it, that it would begin to have less significance. But but in fact, on the contrary, the attendance at, at remembrance services actually went up. And has gone up. You know, the, the, the centenary commemorations of Gallipoli, so more Australians, so many Australians and, and New Zealanders were trying to get to Gallipoli that uh, they had to make it a, you know, you had to, it was like a lottery. You know, you had to apply for the chance to get tickets to go. And so, for whatever reason, I think that, I think our species somehow understands the significance of it. I talk, my wife and I, we talk to our uh, kids about it. Obviously, you know, my, both my grandfathers, my, my, my dad's dad was at the Somme in Passchendaele. My mum's dad was, was wounded as a teenager at Gallipoli mm. uh, and invalided out. And we've told them those stories. Uh, and I think our, our children do, do get it. You know, they're not. They are, they are very distanced from it in time. Uh, but I think the enormity of the event, the events and the loss and the slaughter, uh, it's, it's not difficult, I think, to transmit that to the generations to come. And as I say, regard, you know, don't worry too much about the, the politics of it and why it happened. The fact is tens of millions of people died in those wars, in that war. And that's simply what has to be remembered, if, if nothing else. And I, and I don't think it shows any signs of, of drifting from the national consciousness, nor should it. No, I don't think it does. But uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking beyond uh, my generation and into my children's generation and what will be important to them. Because, again, without wishing to drag everything back into the coronavirus, you know, sort of vortex of doom, you know, there's a lot of young kids. I, mean, I don't know if you heard Dave from Aberdeen just talking to us before uh, we went to the two minute silence about how you know, he's, a, he's a 66 year old man living in sheltered accommodation. He's literally at the end of his tether, hasn't been outside since March the 27th, doesn't know what to do. A lot of kids, I think, will be feeling very kind of put upon and I know that 
compared to what some of our parents and grandparents went through in wars, uh, it's not it's nothing. But but it's a very strange world we live in. It undoubtedly is, and I wouldn't I wouldn't minimise for a moment uh, the the emotional impact that's that's real for who knows how many people are, are truly suffering uh, a great deal on account of uh, lockdown and, and on on account of loss. There are you know can't be overlooked that there are many many people who have lost loved ones on account of it, and I would never I wouldn't really draw too many parallels between the two. Loss and grief mm. are, are eternal human emotions and, and whatever it is that, that triggers it for a person and whatever it is that makes a person feel lost and alone uh, and makes them feel as if they have nothing uh, left to live for then that is the that is the the nub of it and, and it must be if that is the way a person is feeling then that has to be taken seriously and and it's it's incumbent upon every one of us to take responsibility for people feeling like that you know, I've written relatively recently about you know that this kind of thief of time that the, the COVID uh, virus and the lockdown has been for people, not to minimise the whatever the, the risks of, of the of the disease, whatever they are, uh, but to but the danger of, of underestimating how we've lost a year. Twenty twenty has been has been compromised for everyone. Uh, so many plans that people had, things that would have happened, people they would have met, experiences they would have had that have all been been set aside by the by the lockdown restrictions, and that will have. Uh, taken a toll, but I think the 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 remembrance the remembrance day I think is such that, it, that there would ever be any possibility of the significance of that date being lost. I would find absolutely heartbreaking, and I, I think too that the fact that there is a genuine focus of attention to this day around the, the tomb of the unknown warrior, because there are important lessons to be learned from that. You know, whoever he was, the body was the body was selected at, at random. About either four or eight corpses had been had been collected together from the big charnel houses, Ain, Arras, Ypres, and the Somme. Mm. And Brigadier General Wyatt, who was the senior commanding officer, went in and, and selected the body. They were all under Union Jack flags, so so there was anonymity was always key. And then he was treated to the highest ceremony. And he's within Westminster Abbey, and it has on it, you know, that they buried him among kings because he had done honour to God and toward his house. And but the point is, he's anonymous, and that he would have been one of those soldiers, you know, he arrived back as a as a dead man at, at Victoria Station, mm. and it's probably the station that he had departed from. And when those men travelled, those soldiers, they were packed onto. Uh, you know, troop trains, you know, with, with limited whatever facilities and comfort. And always there would be a separate train leaving from Victoria Station that had all the red-tabbed senior officers. And they had restaurant cars and livery flunkies and all the rest of it. They travelled and were treated differently. And that unknown warrior travelled first class and was treated with that kind of respect only once on his return to his homeland as a dead man. Mm. Only once was he was he treated in that way. Uh, by, the, by that time, his name and his very identity had been lost. And I think there's something very profound about that, that it, it was only in anonymity that one of us, you know, one of the rank and file, one of the ordinary people was treated in that way. And that's that sacrifice and the way the nation has sought to treat him and to remember him, whoever he was, I think it becomes a focal point for everyone's grief at all times. I think he stands for something immortal and eternal. And I think anyone's, anyone's grief 
has a dotted line connection to the to the unknown warrior mm. because it just says something about one of us and all of the people out there who are being so badly affected emotionally by by lockdown or who have lost people you know their their grief becomes part of the shared grief that people seek or ought to seek to express mm. when they show respect to the fallen and to the unknown warrior uh, and, and I think th- that's why there's so much e- eternal, everlasting significance around the ceremonial that we attach to that one lost person whose identity we will never know. Indeed. And I think there's something honourable about it as well, um, because it it, re- it represents something that was worth fighting for and perhaps indeed worth dying for. I mean, there are plenty of people that you can find uh, in the world today who don't think anything's worth dying for. Um, but previous generations disagreed with that. Well, yes, it's a very emotive subject, isn't it? You know, whether the war was, was, was right, whether it was just. Um, but, but nonetheless, these those, that so many of, of the ordinary people, people like you and me, you know, people listening to this programme, sacrificed. They were sacrificed, or you would say that they, that they offered themselves up and they, and they were prepared to take that risk. And so many millions of them, you know, paid that price, but they... You know, in, in most cases, they went into it knowingly because they felt that they were representing and defending something worthwhile. And you could argue till you were blue in the face about whether they were misled or whether it was lions led by donkeys and all the rest of the controversy around it. Mm. Uh, but that uh, that uh, ability to to offer that that sacrifice and to see that the that the greater good. Uh, you know, that, that, that each one of us has an obligation and a responsibility and indeed a potential to do something to protect that which has been good should always be inspirational. Uh, and, that, you know, you could argue again until you're blue in the face about whether their sacrifice was in vain, but the fact is they made it. The fact is they made it. Uh, and we live in a world today that is a consequence of what happened between 1914 and 1945, you know those terrible, those terrible decades that just burned like a fire. You know, and the and the and the fire just drew in uncounted millions of people. Uh, and it, it's it's part of what should remind us about our 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 humanity, our shared humanity, and that and that people have made these sacrifices in the past because they believe that there are times when there is something worth living for and dying for. It's something profound about our species and never to be forgotten. Absolutely, because the other reason, of course, for the unknown warrior, um, and I was watching, I think, a documentary on this a while back, is the numbers of people, thousands of people, who died uh, on those fields in Flanders and elsewhere, uh, whose bodies were never recovered because it just wasn't possible to do so. Well, it wasn't. It was, it was decided early on, or it was realised early on, that the, the death toll was going to be so great that it, the, the logistics of repatriating the dead, it was impossible. And, and it, was, it was traditional anyway, for simplicity's sake, that, that fallen British soldiers would be, would be buried where they fell. Mm. American, the American army has always, has always taken a different stance on that and, and always sought where possible to, to take... You know, no man left behind, and and, and to repatriate the dead. Mm. But it was, it was a death toll on, on too great a scale. And you know, we've we've talked before about the fact that until the Somme, the soldiers only had a single dog tag that was taken from them, so that army could stop their pay. And when the when the burial parties were overwhelmed by the sheer weight of dead, the carnage, 
by the time they came to bury the bodies, the, the, the decay had set in and they, they no longer knew who was who. And so they had to, they had to bury them in, in mass graves, then create a semblance of order above them with the, with the serried ranks of Portland crosses and Portland stones. Mm. But in reality, they were just getting over the fact that it was, it was mass graves, in, in many cases, of anonymous dead. They knew who was dead, but they couldn't put the names to the, to the individual bodies. Mm. And it's, a, it's a, a reminder, apart from anything else, of the sheer scale of what started to happen uh, to the men in, in France and elsewhere as the, as, the, as the technology got ahead of the tactics and, and the death tolls were impossible to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the whole thing, that the unknown warrior, was, it, was a, it was a British chaplain, I think David Railton, who chanced upon a grave in 1915, I think, which was marked with a wooden cross that simply had on it uh, the grave of an unknown British soldier. And he was, he was deeply affected by that thought. And it, it was he who set in, in motion the wheels that eventually gave rise to the unknown warrior, the powers that be insisted that it be warrior, not soldier, so that it would also accommodate uh, people from the Navy and the, and the Air Force, mm. you know, that, would be, that they would be cradled within that concept uh, as well. But if nothing else, you know, to remember the simple fact that so many men died together in such a short space of time that we couldn't even keep track of who they were. Yeah. You know, that a country would sweep up the best of its people and ask them to make that kind of sacrifice and then couldn't even handle keeping track of who they were. That, that, that evidence of the scale of that horror it's just it's one of many things, a simple thing that should never be remembered, that, that people just became anonymous ghosts yeah. and they haunt us still. Yeah, it really is quite a remarkable thing. Um, I'm glad that we were able to have you on today, Neil, of all days, to talk about it. I was going to ask you about what's going on in America, but we haven't really got a lot of time. But uh, if you had 30 seconds to sum up what's going on over there, what would you say? Uh, America, the, the you know, the land of the free... Uh, it, it has to be a beacon of order and it has to be able to demonstrate to the world that when it holds uh, a general election, that it's, that it's fair and that it's to be trusted by as close to possible as 100% of its people. And so they, they have to go through whatever uh, legal and constitutional processes are available to, to, to all the interested parties until somehow they arrive at something that, that as many people as possible can trust. Because if America can't do it, then then what hope is there uh, for the rest of the, the Western world? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Neil, thanks very much indeed. We'll talk to you again same time next week. Neil Oliver, archaeologist, TV presenter, of course. Blood of the Clans, uh, we didn't get to either, which is a great show uh, out there on iPlayer. If you haven't seen it, uh, go and have a look. There's a fascinating character called James Graham, who's apparently some kind of bloodthirsty warrior. Can't imagine why. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk to Janet, who's in Newcastle. Hi, Janet. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm just ringing up to um, convey my deep concern for Dave. Yeah. Um, in February, we moved my father into sheltered accommodation in Annick, and he was delighted to be there. It was very sociable. They had lunches, events every evening. I, and he had a, a lounge where he could play the piano. Right. Um, unfortunately, when lockdown occurred in March, they became extremely draconian. Letters every week as to what he co- could and couldn't do. Yeah. They closed the doors, they locked the lounge. And unfortunately, he became depressed. Right. And we weren't aware of this. 
And who runs um, these places, Janet? I mean, I appreciate they might all be different, but is it is it private companies, local um, is, councils? This what? Is the, this is Anchor Housing in Annick, which he was paying privately to be there. Mm. And um, we're not. I'm not disparaging the care he had, but I just felt that to stop all the activities for the lonely elderly residents who weren't able to see their family is incredibly isolating. My father spent hours and hours and hours on his own, and we had no, no, we just didn't know that he was getting depressed. Mm. And unfortunately, on the 17th of October, um, he took his own life in the uh, apartment he was in, the sheltered accommodation. And I, I actually believe this is due, sorry, I'm breaking up a bit. Um, I actually believe this is partly due to his isolation. Mm. And the government has to stop. We have to get back on with our lives. Elderly people do not want to be cooped up in their sheltered accommodation, told what they can and can't do. My father had no overriding health issues, no mental health issues. He was a happy, clever man. He was an engineer. He could play the piano. He could play the saxophone. So for all of that to be taken away from him, he loved his quiet. They Mm. closed all the quiet. So if it's affecting someone like my dad who had no mental health problems, no major health issues, how is it affecting the millions of people that are way more vulnerable than my father? Yes, and also who don't have anyone like you, Janet, um, to talk to about it because I didn't get the sense from Dave that, that he had any family. I don't know that for sure, but it seemed to me that he felt totally abandoned. Oh, I mean, I really think we should intervene. I think his sheltered accommodation should intervene. The social workers, I know they're, I know they're oversubscribed. It's extremely busy for them. I'm not degrading or denigrating anyone in the, in the NHS, but we have to reach out to people, even community groups trying to go into sheltered accommodation. It's time to act yes. because we're going to see more people dying of non-COVID-related deaths post this pandemic than we would have seen dying in COVID. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply saddened for people that have lost uh, relatives to COVID or, you know, they've had COVID themselves, but we have to carry on. We have to. We got mm. through two world wars. We have to have a spine. We have to have the government stop dictating to us. They are there to govern. They are not there to be dictatorial no. and orders around. We right. have to get all that. All these businesses that are losing money hand over fist. It's just a despair. I was a Tory voter and. Believe you me, I am joining reform. And if I have to go canvassing at the the, the ground, knocking on people's doors and listening to their stories to change this government, to stop them doing what they're doing before any more people die. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous, Janet. And I take a great issue with these scientists who are pushing the government into various different measures that they have to do in order to, in their words, save lives. Because it's very clear that saving lives is not what this is doing. But they're not elected in. These people are not elected in by the British government. How can Vance and Whitty, who are, who are being paid hundreds of thousands of pounds and have shares in some of these companies that are going to produce these vaccines, dictate the lives of millions of people? And I don't just speak for myself. I speak for probably millions of people in this country. It's time to man up, get back to work, take precautions, look after our elderly and vulnerable but carry on with our lives. And I'll tell you what, there's no way I am doing a lockdown. I'm carrying on with my life as my dad would want me to. Well said, Janet. And best wishes to you and your family. And what a terrible, terrible indictment uh, of this policy that we are seeing time and time again 
Dave in Aberdeen, Janet's father in Newcastle, in Annick, uh, which you'll know well uh, if you're from that part of the world. It isn't right. It's not the right thing to do. It's as simple as that. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Right now, though, time for what we do uh, at 12.30 uh, after the news, of course. It's time for some homeschooling. Now, there'll be those of you uh, who have sent your kids back to school uh, who may still be at school. There'll be some of you who have got your kids back home again uh, because they've either been told to self-isolate for a while or uh, because the school might have had a couple of problems with COVID. But if you are uh, in uh, just on your own and your kids are still at school, never mind, because we're about to have a conversation with you about baking. Now, the Great Bake Off, of course, the British Bake Off is very, very popular. Uh, We're going to speak now to Eloise Frank, co-founder of The Big Bakes, and she's going to tell us about how much fun you can have with your kids baking. Eloise, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello. (laughs) Thanks very much for joining us. Tell us a bit about The Big Bakes, because uh, it's an attempt, I think, to kind of recreate a bit of the, uh, the excitement of The Great British Bake Off, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the Big Bakes has been around for three years now. So it's the UK's kind of first and only live baking competition. So we run multiple sessions where we change the theme every month. So for example, in December, it's going to be our our really kind of fun Christmas special, which is nice and festive. Um, and it's a chance for kind of you and a baking partner to come down to the event and yeah kind of let your skills um, be put to the test so we'll set up all the ingredients for you you'll have a step-by-step recipe to follow and then you'll bake it with a partner Um, and then it'll all be judged at the end by our sort of professional pastry chef that um, hosts so is it is is there a kind of a mince pie making contest or something like that <laughs> yeah, we try. We do something a bit more exciting than mince pies. <laughs> um, and we don't encourage- knock mince pies. Is they wrong with mince pies? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a chance for people to get really um, creative. So we always kind of give you a blank canvas and then you can flavour it how you want. You rummage the creation corner and you pick all your decorations. Yeah. So we'll we'll do a bit of judging on that at the end. Okay. And people love baking. I mean, everybody saw what happened in the first lockdown. You know, you couldn't get any flour for love nor money because people were <laughs> making cakes all over the place, right, left and centre. And I mean, what I find interesting about baking is that sometimes you can make something look really, really good and it doesn't taste great or vice versa. You can make something that tastes really, really good, but you have it takes you a while to sort of get the look right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why we kind of spend a lot of time developing our recipes because we have a lot of novice bakers come into our event. So part of the purpose of our event was just to make baking sort of fun and accessible for everyone. So we do what we think is the more boring part. So, you know, source the recipe, test it, weigh all the ingredients out for you so that guests just get to come, you know, follow the step by step and then have um, a lot of time making sure that they've made something that tastes really great because we've kind of provided that for them. But they can decorate it and get as kind of creative as they want right and i mean is it for everybody because you know some people are less likely to be um as good with their hands i suppose when they first start so decorating might not come naturally to them but but can you convince everybody that they can do it yeah I mean that was part of our event was kind of just to make it accessible for everybody because we've done a lot of the hard work you know our recipes are tried and tested on novice bakers before we kind of put them live in our event so we make sure that and they're really easy to follow everyone can do it um, and then we provide expert hand um, sort of that's on help if you need it so you know okay. you've got a head there who's going to help you and show you how to do certain things if you need the help. Okay and you've got a little recipe for us today cookie chips and dips which sounds very pot so that'd be very popular in most houses 
Yeah, so this one's um, one that we actually launched kind of in the previous lockdown. So we did sort of some online baking tutorials. So this one's really nice and kind of simple to follow. Um, and it is sort of one that you might have in, in your cupboard anyway. So I can kind of talk you through how to make that one. Yeah, well, do tell us because first of all, let's start with the equipment because a lot of people kind of look at the idea of, oh, I must make a cake. But then they think, well, what do I yeah. need? You know, what do I need to have to make a cake? What equipment do you need? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of equipment, you just need a mixing bowl that you're going to mix everything together in, um, a spatula, then you need a rolling pin because this one you're making a cookie dough, um, and then you need a knife um, and a baking tray, and then some microwavable pots because you're going to make some dips so that you can um, dip your cookie fries into. Okay. And do you need a little cookie cutter or anything like that, or not really? Um, it's up to you with that one. So you can just use the knife to kind of cut them into cookie chips, or you can use a cutter if you want to get a bit more creative and, and have something a bit neater. Okay, and a mixing bowl doesn't have to be one of those really expensive sort of uh, electric ones, does it? You can just be a bowl. No, any big bowl, yeah, you can use. You're just going to put um, sort of all of the ingredients together in that mixing bowl and, and kind of whip them all up into a dough. So, yeah, just a large bowl. Yeah, and, I mean, it's very clear. 50 grams of sugar, 100 grams of butter, 150 grams of flour, 50 grams of chocolate chips. I mean, it sounds pretty straightforward, really. Yeah, no, this one's a nice and easy recipe. Um, so, yeah, um, you start off by kind of just you need to preheat the oven to 180 degrees and then you want to line your baking tray with some parchment paper just so it doesn't stick. But then you're going to just um, grab your mixing bowl and start by creaming together the butter and sugar. So that's where you just kind of mix the butter and sugar, make it so it's pale and fluffy. And then you're going to stir the flour into your mixture until it's all incorporated. And then that's what brings your dough together. And is there a trick to the butter? Like how soft does it have to be or... Not too hard coming out of the fridge? Yeah, so you want it to ideally be about sort of room temperature just so it's soft enough so that you can mix it into the sugar nice and easily. Okay. And the most important bit is, um, you know, when you've made all of these, uh, how long does it take you to eat them? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So you just want to make sure you let them cool down first because they will be rather hot as soon as you take them out of the oven. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I've, got a, I've got a son who loves to bake cakes and he's terribly impatient. And I, I've, I've worked in bakeries and things, so I know a little bit about it. And I always, I, I always struggle to get him to be patient because he can't wait. You know, he's got the sponge out there and I'm like, just leave it for a while. Just leave it. Yeah. Patience is a virtue, isn't it? Yeah, and no, that's the thing. Once it cools, it's a bit easier to get out the tray as well. Yeah, exactly right. So um, how do people get in touch with, with you, Eloise, if they want to come and do um, the uh, the big bake-off scenario? How do they, uh, how do they set that up? Yeah. No, so brilliant. So we're available on um, www.thebiglondonbake.com. You can see all of our sessions on there and you can purchase tickets. Um, we're also on social media, so um, you can watch some of our baking tutorials where we show step-by-steps um, on at the big underscore bakes on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, brilliant stuff, Eloise. Thank you very much indeed. Eloise Frank there uh, from The Big Bakes talking about all sorts of uh, wonderful things that you can do because coming up to... Uh, what the end of the first week of lockdown technically speaking we're about to enter the second week tomorrow uh there'll be plenty of things for you to do uh with your kids there'll be plenty of things to do uh, with your families and baking particularly on these uh you know long nights is always very good because some people don't like the long nights some people can't stand the dark they say it gets dark too early but you know there's all manner of things you can do to keep yourselves busy and to keep yourselves occupied and cooking and making cakes is a very very good way to do it so that's our homeschooling for today as ever uh, if you've got any thoughts about homeschooling subjects you'd like us to cover uh, by all means do let us know you can tweet me at iromg at talk radio of course as well talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.